Hey, this is Gabe Barcia Colombo. You can call me Gabe BC. And welcome to the State of the Art Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology. Each week, I'm going to interview another artist, creator, android, robot, avatar, CEO, or museum specialist about the ever-changing relationship between art and tech. For me, this is especially interesting because I myself am a digital artist who works with and teaches technology. One of the challenges facing media artists today is the concept of preservation. Any work of art needs to be restored, touched up, and preserved to last over time. But when you make a work of art using laser projectors, old TVs, or the latest augmented reality apps, this becomes increasingly difficult to maintain. My guest today tackles just these sort of problems. Morgan Kessler is the Media Collections Manager at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. She basically cares for and preserves the museum's collection of time-based media artworks. Morgan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So how does somebody become a conservator of media art? Like, do you have a background in this or is it something that you just sort of stumbled into one day? There's definitely a lot of ways, but yeah, I stumbled into it. (laughs) Um, I I got my uh, undergraduate in film production from uh, Boston University and I really want to do that. So I moved to L.A. and kind of hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I did some post house work. Um, for commercials and that was fun editing I tried some production design all sorts of stuff and then I ended up working for um, this man Peter Kirby and he worked a lot with artists uh, and museums and I really liked that work and I learned a lot and through that I ended up coming to LACMA as an exhibitions installation specifically for time-based media and then through that I ended up being the media collections manager. And how long have you been at LACMA? Started in 2012 as the exhibitions tech, and I think 2015, I think, is when I started in this role. Nice. And uh, what was the department like when you first began? I assume it changes over time as new technology becomes available. There have been some huge changes. So it used to be that um, AV was all one. So the people who did the installations were also the people who ran the live events, which is wow different different skill set. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so then when I came in, they had just split that into sort of live events and then what they called, um, I don't remember, time-based media at the time was the department, which then got broke down even further. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm under collections management. And then we have um, Patrick Heilman does the gallery media and he does a great job. And he and I work very closely, especially when it comes to uh, documentation and just checking in about what we've received. Is that going to work? And so we work very closely. So you're responsible for, for quite a bit, actually, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in charge of managing the permanent collection of time-based media artworks. And what are some of the biggest factors in terms of digital conservation? Like when you acquire a new piece at LACMA, what are you specifically responsible for? Um, so the first thing that comes in is we send out a questionnaire. It's a time-based media and installation questionnaire. And that's where we try to get um, a lot of information about what the piece is, what's critical to it, especially if there's multiple components. Can they all be shown separately? Do they have to be shown together? Um, and we also ask for some nitty-gritty information like, what are you going to send as your archival master? And we tell them uh, we prefer, you know. 10-bit, uncompressed. We tell them our preferences. Um, So once I get that form, and then I can look through it and note any red flags or questions from the get-go. And then we get the media. Then I actually watch every version and Hmm. make sure it's okay. And I would say 30 to 40% have some sort of questions or errors or just need some further information about 
which I was surprised it was so high, but right. What yeah. what kind of errors are you talking about when you say there's errors in the in the way that they're played back? Sure. Sometimes it's um the it'll flash to like a green digital artifact, hmm. which means something happened during transfer, something happened during output. Especially when you have these long ones that are multiple channels, it's it's a lot of work to watch them and make sure they look how you want. Um I also notice a lot of subtitle typos. Huh. Or I'll notice if they provide us three versions, you know, archival duplication exhibition, maybe they have different run times. Maybe one has audio and the other ones don't. So those kind of questions are ones that I like to really get them nailed down while we have this great line to the artist and while we can still get quick answers. Um, so really just trying to get as good of an understanding, uh, do we have exactly what we're going to need at the time of acquisition rather than waiting till it's time to install it and then you have some nasty little surprises. Right. So once you've acquired a piece, how often do you have to update or maintain that piece? I mean, I assume you know you have pieces that were probably made on LaserDisc or something like that, right? And now yeah. we're working with completely d a different medium, right? We're working with digital files on a hard drive. So how yeah. often, is there a certain time frame or a, a time period you have to update these these projects? Well, sometimes what we do is um, we use this cataloging system called uh, TMS. And so one thing that we've sort of customized it to is attributes. So one thing we can do is tag it, LaserDisc, tag it to the media. We tag the codecs. We tag all sorts of things so that we can look over those and say, oh, yeah, we really need to do those now. I mean, LaserDiscs, yes, we've been, we've been <laughs> digitizing those. Anything that's a tape needs to get digitized, you know, as soon as possible. Um we have some that we just can't afford to digitize right now, like HD cams. We don't have a deck, so those kind of have to get on hold. But it really depends. There's so many. The software artworks really need to get checked annually mm -hmm. to make sure they're still working and running. The um, quick times, I like to just check the checksums annually, too. And so, I, you know, as an artist who makes work with technology, I'm constantly thinking about this. Is the artwork different if you're changing the medium that it's uh, saved on? Like if, if you are updating something from, let's say, an old DVD and bringing it into a QuickTime file, yeah. would you consider that or do, do artists consider that a different work? Usually no. Usually no. Mm -hmm. And and I think part of that also has to do with just the nature of it. If it's a DVD, you know, we could just copy it. Does that mean it's new additions? It's such a complicated question. Yeah. It, Often we find that what makes the work is the certificate of authenticity. Right. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. So just like how somebody, you know, could have a reproduction of a photograph, right? But if it's signed by the original artist, that would be what makes it the the original. Um, yes. Let's, let's talk about a specific work. So I was at LACMA, you know, a couple of years back. And I saw this piece called Video Flag Z by Namjoon Pike, the video artist, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. uh, a giant piece of 84 television sets with looping video content um, that are all stacked and arranged. So it's sort of like a, an animation overload uh, that looks somewhat like an American flag. Um, yeah. And this is a work that LACMA bought, right, uh, in the 90s, I believe. Yeah, I think it was even the 80s. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was created in 1986, yeah. I think. So I didn't know it was acquired back then. Um, can you Could you tell me sort of like what kind of upkeep is required to maintain a work like Video Flag Z? Yeah, and this one was is a really interesting case study. And I know our conservation department has also published a lot of information, too. So if you're interested in the nitty gritty, you can go ahead and, and Google that. But um, they did a lot of work because it was a whole bunch of small CRTs. Uh, and so they were starting to die. 
So at the time they decided what they were going to do is cut off the fronts of all these monitors and actually replace the CRT monitors in the back about the same size, about the same everything, and just put the facade of the old monitors on so that it start so that it looks like how it was. So CRT um, is, uh, for those of you who don't know, CRT is cathode ray tube. So it's those old, big, bulky TV sets that you'd had in the 80s, right? So they would cut the... And when the, you turn them on, they go, bong. Right. <laughs> Which is part of the work, right? Like you see that that tube quality in the work. <laughs> And there's a there's an electric feel to it, too. So if you stand in front of a flat screen, you don't feel the same as you do feel in front of a big CRT. In front of a CRT, you almost feel like static electricity on your skin. Right. And so these started to die after a certain amount of time, right? They, they burn yes. out. The tubes break. Yes. And so you replace, you cut off the front of the piece and you replace the tube inside or you replace the entire TV itself? The entire monitor. The entire wow. thing. Wow. And was that yeah. was that something that you discussed with Namjoon Pike before he passed away in two, in two thousand five, I believe, or two thousand six? Uh, it or- was very very lucky because, um, and I don't know who it was at LACMA, but someone had the foresight to get Namjoon Pike to sign a release to allow LACMA conservation to do use their best judgment for conserving the piece. So sort of an open ended yes, I allow LACMA to make these decisions about how they want to maintain and preserve the piece. Wow. Do do you stock replacement parks at LACMA for a piece like this? Not anymore. So so what's interesting now is is I know that the um monitor plastics are starting to weep a little bit. Hmm. And so now if we reinstall it, now it's another question of how we are going to replace the plastic on those. Because the monitors are still working, but the actual facade that was taken off, the plastic is starting to melt a little bit. So now it'll be a, another one. Wow, you, just, you can't win here with digital art preservation, right? There's always something and new to worry about. You can't because they're not making CRTs like that anymore. So it's just getting more and more expensive and more and more rare. And, and at some point, there'll have to be some bigger decisions made. You know, can these be shown with non-CRTs or or... Maybe the piece can't be shown if we just don't have the equipment. Right. And some artists are fine with that, right? Like I know Dan Flavin, um, some of those light pieces that he created were designed to die after a certain amount of time. So it's kind of interesting to think about as an artist, do you want your piece to be ephemeral? Do you want it to to maybe just be a one-off thing? Do you want it to live forever? Um, So I guess it's interesting to make those choices ahead of time rather than just to focus on the creation of the work. Now you have to think about how that work is going to live on after you. And I enjoy being conservation and letting the artist decide that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. They leave it to, as long as there's instructions from the artist, right? Yeah. I was thinking yeah. about, you know, a non-media art piece that uh, Damien Hurst, uh, Damien Hurst shark piece, the yeah. the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living, which for those of you who don't know, is it's a shark floating in formaldehyde. But yep. after a certain amount of time, the shark started to degrade and was no longer as menacing as when it started. And that's kind of the point of the piece is that you're staring at this, you know, scary looking shark. But if the shark is missing an eye or drooping, uh, so they, re- they ended up replacing that shark. And so I have a lot of discussions with other artists about well, is that the same artwork if you replace yeah. the shark? And so you're saying with media art, it is the same. It's more about the concept than the physical part of the piece. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean... You, you don't see, so if you're going to take a DVD and you're going to make it a quick time, you're not downgrading. It'll still look the same. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're going to put a different shark in there. Right. So, <laughs> you know, it, it is a totally different way of thinking because it's not, you wouldn't take a painting and repaint it, you know, and say, okay, this is it. Well, it's made the same with the same materials. It's, 
it's very different. It's very different. But you would take a painting and you would touch it up, right? Like there's people that touch it up, but you couldn't totally replace it. Right. That's how you end up with one of those problems like that uh, picture of the the painting of the Christ that was touched up poorly. Do you remember that piece? The monkey Jesus. Oh, the monkey Jesus is the best. (laughs) Have you had any monkey Jesus problems in media art? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. I guess it's harder to tell. I mean, it's it's not like you're going to leave. I'm not even sure what the the analogy would be. Like, would you leave artifacts that weren't there originally? You know, how would how would that translate to a digital work? I don't know. Um, I, I, you know, I went to a, a, a talk and Glenn Phillips was talking about this one. And now I can't remember what the actual piece was, but it's a black and white piece. And um, it had been shown in one gallery with the black levels really low. In the next gallery, they cranked it up so mm. that you could see what was happening. And when the artist isn't around, who we who we look to in that case is curatorial because they have more of a background of understanding the piece and making that that particular decision. But yes, you can definitely mess it up. Let's say you, someone goes in and decides to take um, something that's been meant to have really crazy colors. Maybe they went in and made them all broadcast safe. Right. You know. No, that's a great analogy. That makes total sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about another work. Uh, you recently worked on a piece called Composition for Marimba by Mungo Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to describe that piece, uh, it's an iPhone app. And it's an iPhone. The sculpture is an actual iPhone on a stand. And on that phone is a deck of cards. And each deck, you know, each card is shuffled through. So you see like two of spades, five of clubs, jack of diamonds, and it keeps shuffling through an infinite amount of shuffles. Um, And for each card, there's a sound from a marimba. So yeah, Mm -hmm. for the listeners who are unfamiliar with a marimba, it's sort of similar to a xylophone, but much larger. So it, it plays with each card a different note. And what's really fascinating about the piece is that the number of possible arrangements in the deck of cards is so astronomically large that the program will never run through all the possible combinations. I guess not even within the Earth's lifespan. This is what the artist says. Uh, Yeah. So for something like this piece, what does the museum have ownership over? Is it the physical sculpture? Is it the, the program that goes with it? Is it both? And how do you preserve something like this? So this is something that uh, my my colleague Joey Heinen and I worked a lot on. Um, we got the physical iPhone, and the artist also provided us with the Xcode project. And Xcode is just an application that you can use to create mobile apps. So he gave us the Xcode project with also assets. So that was really great. Um, and this was a very interesting piece because at the time, we just didn't have the manpower or the hours or anything to really check that the Xcode was working. Mm -hmm. So the piece went immediately on display um, and worked great. It's a beautiful piece. And then it went back into storage. And then when Joey and I decided to take a look at it again, we took it out, popped it open and the app wouldn't launch anymore. Right. (laughs) So we, it was such, it was very scary. You say, Oh no, what happened? Um, And so then we guessed that probably what had happened was the operating system had upgraded without our knowledge and maybe it wasn't working anymore. So then what we ended up doing is uh, then opening the Xcode project, which was its own hurdles. And this had only been two years in the collection. Only two years had passed. And the amount of Xcode updates required us to install not only, you know, two generations back, get it up and working so that you can migrate this language Swift um, to the newest one. So it required a lot of leapfrogging between programs. Right. 
And so once we were get up, able to get it up and running, we looked at the source code. We tried to understand exactly what it was doing. Then we were lucky enough to have an interview with the artist. And I really think it's important to have the interview with the artist after you've already delved into the piece, because then you can have really specific questions. If you're just having an interview without looking at the nitty gritty, I mean, it's just conceptual, not really preservation. So, so we had this great interview with him. We asked, what does random mean? Are these always linked together? So we got into some really great specifics. And it was very interesting, too, because the reason the app had stopped working was because the Apple developer license expired. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a problem that anybody <laughs> who develops apps runs into, right? You just yeah, have to maintain that. So does the museum have to maintain that license or is it on the artists to maintain at this point? Well, now it'll be on us, the museum. Hmm. And is that part of the original agreement with the artists? Like, oh, you need to maintain this Apple developer license as well? Like when you buy this work? Is, and, and this is why it's kind of the Wild West and you make a lot of mistakes and then you just can uh, adjust your protocols and your best practices. And that's the only way you can really... It's so hard to foresee these things. The artist, it took him by surprise, too, because he said every single edition stopped working at the same time. Wow. <laughs> that must be yeah. a nightmare for him. <laughs> yeah, right? It's scary, scary all around. It's, it's yeah, very easy for things to go wrong digitally. Um, so, yeah, we got it up and running. Um, and I think, I think what really makes this particular field unique is that it's really important that you have the ability to rebuild it. Because we know an iPhone 6 is not going to be around forever. Mm -hmm. Is it even going to be accessible five years from now? You know, how long is the iPhone 6 going to be working? So we got into um, the same kind of information. If we're able to do like we did with Namjoon Pike, could we figure out a facade that looks like the iPhone 6? but has some other hardware in it. Can we go to an Android? Does it have to be an Apple? You know, and all those sort of questions, um, which were really, really good to clarify with, with the artist. And, you know, what do we do when there are no more mobile phones? We all communicate with, you know, retinal phones. Or something. <laughs> Telepathically, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So and, and just, did you end up rebuilding the iPhone? Like, did you have a case that's not a true iPhone now there? Or is that just something you're planning on doing in the future? That's something we want to know that we have the ability to do when we need to do it. Wow. And so the artist doesn't necessarily demand that it has to be an iPhone in, no. in the piece. No. Huh. I wonder how that would work for something like a virtual reality piece uh, where, you know, the Oculus, maybe the, the yeah. piece is so linked to the fact that this is, this is an Oculus that was purchased by Facebook at that time. You know, like there, yeah. there are pieces, uh, I'm thinking of a friend of mine, Sarah Rothberg, who made a work that's just about that called Memory Place. Um, but, you know, sometimes the technology is, is integral to the meaning of the work, too. Yes. Um, do you have you ever? And in this case, it was because he said, you know, the iPhone is so ubiquitous. It's something that's so familiar to us. So, you know, 20 years from now, when the iPhone is no longer in everyone's hand like that, maybe there's something else that would make it more true. And with with the idea of randomness, were you then yeah. reprogramming random, randomness into this uh, app or was the artist responsible for that as well? That was that was all the code was from the artist, but we wanted to know what random meant. Does random mean, okay, it goes through one sequence, it can never do that sequence again? Or does it mean, and, and what it had turned out to be is, no, it, it's so random, it could do that sequence again. Right, right. That makes yeah. sense. So if you if you want to collect this kind of work, let's say you're not a museum, you don't have people like you <laughs> who are going to yeah. do all this research for you. If you're an art collector, what's important to ask an artist when you want to buy a, a media artwork? 
I would say asking about upkeep, like a long term, what what's going to happen, and you know, is the artist? I I don't know if the artist would be available to constantly do upgrades for free, but maybe you can build something into the contract. Like if I need something new after ten years, maybe just for the cost of materials or something. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you ever work with artists where they have a lasting relationship with the museum where maybe you say over the next three years, you're going to be part of the preservation of this work? No, uh, I mean, well, that's not true. Some t- there, there are definitely some artists who have given us things with the caveat that we are not allowed to do the preservation on them. Oh, wow. because they want to keep them keep all that to themselves. And and I understand that. And, you know, honestly, my job is to to respect the artist's wishes, keep the work going as long as we can, but also respecting the wishes and not making big decisions for them, too. Have you run into, like, seriously temperamental media artists before? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I won't ask you for too much detail on who those, who those <laughs> although I'm really dying to know who those specific media artists are. But uh, do you have any, like, <laughs> scenarios you could, you know, tangentially mention, not with names, but just situations that you've you've had where it's been really difficult to deal with someone because of the way they wanted their technology to be preserved or um, modified? I would say the only time I've had really issues is during when I was working on the installation team. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and there were some like frustrations that y- you take out on the installers. Oh, no, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. That's but awful. I mean, well, what can you do? <laughs> so can you speak but to no, the... ev- most people have been very, very friendly. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Um, can you speak to the importance of checking digital media? Like you're talking about yes. um, looking at artifacts in a piece. I'm thinking specifically of your anecdote about an Isaac Julian piece that you worked on recently. Yes, yes. So um, previous to my time in this position, we have a whole bunch of things that came in, um, were put in the closet and then just sort of left for when we needed them. And Isaac Julian had his piece coming up, Playtime, which is actually installed right now at LACMA. And it's a very cool piece. Um, and so we had this hard drive. The media had already been migrated. The checksums matched. And the checksums is just something that the computer can go bit by bit and double check to make sure that they're the same. So when I transfer it off the hard drive, it's exactly the same on my digital storage system. Hmm. So when we went to install it, we found that this QuickTime was filled with digital artifacts. How did that happen? Do you know? I, and, and it's so hard to know because I don't know if it was actually checked when it came in. Maybe it came in like that. Um, I'm guessing that how it's how it had to be, but, or maybe it just, Bit rot? I don't know. But <laughs> wait, wait, that, wait. What is bit rot? I, I've never heard of bit rot before. Bit rot. Um, digitally, something goes wrong in it. Okay, and how can how, how can that happen? Just from like dust in a hard drive, or is it more of a? I, I, I don't know. I don't know how it happens. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's a good question. But uh, not one I can answer. No, bit, bit, um, you know, bit rot's a great name for a heavy metal band, though. Anyway, so I'll, I'll note, <laughs> yeah, note that down that. here. Exactly. But yeah, so that was that was a really frustrating situation. And and if you're going to be acquiring artworks, it's so crucial that you don't just acquire one copy. Now, in this case, we did also have an LTO tape that we could restore from. And we were in contact with the artist and they were able to send another version. And what's an LTO tape for those that don't know? Uh, um, it's a magnetic tape that you need a special player to read. And mm. and since it's magnetic, it can last a long time. It's great for archival, but like everything in this world, it really needs a lot of maintenance. Right. 
And so you you worked on this piece, Playtime. It's now at LACMA. It's showing right now. And could you could you describe like just visually what that kind of artifact would look like? Like if we were this is a video mm-hmm. piece, right? Playtime. Yeah. Um, and if yeah. we were to watch it, what what kind of things would we see on the frame? You'd see colored lines hmm. through it. So that just plop on and off. Right. And and the way you'd fix that is by redigitizing the piece. This we just got a different since it was a quick time. You can't digitize. I mean, you you don't digitize from LTO. It's kind of functions as a, a hard drive, except it's tape. Oh, okay, well, that makes sense. So you, yeah, yeah, you don't actually. Um, it didn't come in on a tape that you would traditionally digitize from. Yeah, that makes sense. And where so we got replacement QuickTime. Where where are all these files? I, I wonder. Like, is there some sort of secret underground bunker at LACMA where you're keeping all these hard drives and you know thousands <laughs> of uh, old pieces of digital art are being held there, or or where where is everything kept? It was like that. Um, and then when I came in, I start, created our uh, digital storage solution. So we're going to have, we have RAID, which is a multi hard drive can fit in this one piece of equipment. So ours has eight bays, they call it, within this one uh, enclosure. So if two of those die, you can swap them out and you won't lose any information. And this is kind of our working drive that we can pull from things. We also keep the original carriers off-site at cold storage. Hmm. And then we're using this company called Digital Bedrock, uh, who then will put our masters onto LTO tape and do all that maintenance work. And they are very affordable if you're looking, if you're an artist looking for someone to help you preserve your digital files. No, that's great. That's a great resource to let everybody know about. Um, You know, also, I think a lot about documentation of the work like even yeah. more so than the actual work itself. Today, we see everything on the internet. We see documentation of these installations. Like when I was looking for Video Flag Z, I mean, if somebody wants to see it, all they have to do is type in Video Flag Z on Google and we find, you know, 50 videos of it nowadays. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there discussion about how the documentation is almost more important than the work itself? Is that is that possibly true? It's, hmm, no. I mean, we have not had that discussion, but that's because our focus is really on preserving it. But but I know that we have definitely these pieces that are going to end at one point. So yeah, then what will it be? Will it be the video documentation of it? Right. Can we show that? Yeah, it's something I wonder about too. Yeah, I just, I, I, I wonder when that happens, when, you know, yeah. when we run out of the CRT monitors or the Dan Flavin light tubes. Um, what are we going to do? I mean, it's still, we still want to be able to show these works and put them into exhibitions that are based on certain themes. Um, well, as an artist, how would you feel if your piece was shown just as documentation? Right. I mean, it's not the same experience for sure, especially for, you know, some sculptures or installations. Um, but at the same time, there's a certain amount of access that it gives to people that don't necessarily have the ability to come to the museum too. So I think there's a trade-off there for sure. Yep. Yep. Uh, Yeah. I I don't know. It's It's a really interesting debate. Um, and so, yeah, I, I also find it really interesting, this idea that there's an end date to the artworks. Have you dealt with any artists that are saying when you can't preserve this anymore, just let it go? Yeah. Yes. And what, and what kind of works? Not very many, very few. I mean, we have some film works that they don't ever want digitized hmm. and we do have the masters, but kind of once, once it's gone, it's, it's gone. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so is that hard for a museum that's acquiring a piece to to let it go in that way? If you spend a bunch of money on acquiring this piece and now you're going to say, okay, well, I guess that's it. That's the end of the piece. <laughs> it's hard for me. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you ever like... I'm a, thrift, I'm a thrifty person. Do you ever so. fall in love with the works that you're uh, preserving? 
there are definitely some that I that I really like. Yeah. Then what what specifically uh, resonates with you about these works? Is it, is it that you spend so much time looking at them, or is it that uh, <laughs> you feel like you've no, formed the time a... that you spend looking at them can definitely distance you. Really? <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, especially since you're you're not trying. At least for me, I I don't watch an artwork that's coming in for the content. I'm mm-hmm. looking for something else. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and you're just looking for errors, basically, or issues. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, I, and I'm looking from it. And since I have such a production background, I, I do know what the highest quality should look like. You know, right. so if I see something that I think the artist might want to fix, which is why I spend a lot of time point, um, pointing out typos or just questions, you know, sometimes they come in and they're interlaced. And I say, do we have the ability to deinterlace these if it looks better on the monitors? And and in one case, um, this artist, Jennifer West, said, let me look at it first. Right. Said, oh, of course. Yeah, I understand that. So then I sent her what they would look like. And she said, okay, those look fine. And so in this case, it was great because then I could put those copies in our storage system and say, these have been approved by the artist. Nice. You know? So yeah, it's almost because like I, the artist has to re-sign off on the piece after looking at them. Yeah. And you know, it's their babies. I, I don't want to make mistakes in their babies. I want to make sure that they're happy with how it looks. So I saw recently you were working with pieces that were done on, on an old Macintosh, like an old Macintosh classic. And how do you deal with that? I mean, like, do you use emulators to to yes. kind of bring those pieces back to life? And what, you know, can you tell, tell us a little bit about that technology? Yeah, this one's very interesting. Um, this was four floppy disks that I don't think anyone had seen. It, it came in as part of a big gift. And I think they just got put in the cabinet and no one ever looked at them. Wow. Um, so I was able to get the emulator up and running and and uh, did like a video capture so that we could at least see what it looks like when it's working. And I think one thing that's also sort of difficult about the museum world is that some of these are deeds of gift. So we don't actually have a license to show them. And what were so, these specific works that you were emulating? This is um, it's the artist was called Coil and it was a. Uh, pictures of the longhorn beetle i think it was called mm. um and so then now it's a, now it's a whole other question Do, if we actually want to show this showing something on an emulator is not very stable mm. y- you would have to figure out another way to actually show it would Maybe, you show it on an old macintosh like would you actually go back and find one that works no and... way ever <laughs> why the not patrons, the patrons ha- are like on a mission to destroy whatever technology you've put in the museum. I can't even tell you the amount of iPads that somehow get to camera mode. It's just, especially kids, they come on a field trip, they're bored, they're just messing around with the technology. (laughs) They would destroy that computer within the first day. I am certain of it. That's funny. So you just use the emulator and then you would eventually migrate it to some some new system. Yeah, and then, then it would be a question for the uh curatorial is this something you want to spend the money on and that's that's the big that's the big question is this we can do anything we want if we have the money to spend on it so what uh, just you know just purely like technical question here what is the emulator called if somebody has like an old floppy disk and they want to be able to look at it on a new macintosh what kind of software are they are they looking at um you know there's something called vmac there's sheep saver um you, you get a little bit dicey because in order to run those you need to have what's called the the rom of the computer so you you need to also find these particular um 
kind of kind of like a serial number for an actual old computer. Mm. So it's technically you're not supposed to do that, but it's the only way you can do it if you want to find these floppy disks. And and your newest piece that you're working on is a Jennifer Steinkamp piece. Is that correct? Yes. And we haven't started that one completely yet, but it's going to be installed soon. So it's really trying to take the initiative when something is going to be installed to say, oh, okay, do we want to bring this up to date in terms of technology? And can we store it? How can we get all the assets we need? Um, yeah, so that's our that's our next one we're going to be working on. And what specifically do you need for that piece? Like, is there a camera tracking system? Is there a different kind of computer that's necessary for it? Um, no, right now, I think it's using some Max SP patches to run, but it's basically a bunch of videos that will run all around in the space. I see. Okay, so it's projection-based. Is it one of yeah. our, like, tree pieces, kind of? Yeah, kind of like that, yeah. Nice. Well, that's great. So you get a, you get ready ahead of time. You'd ask her the necessary questions, and then you know when you acquire it that you can have all of this stuff ready to go and backed up. Uh, well, this is interesting because we already own it. So we do own it. But it's on a series of DVDs and it's already, you know, at the point where we can now say, well, do you still have access to these files? Could we now get uncompressed because we have that ability? Hmm. Oh, okay. Right. So, yeah, I guess it really makes a big difference to be able to talk to the artists while they're still around. <laughs> Make yes, sure. Huge. Yeah. So I guess some of the stuff from the 60s and 70s might be difficult to preserve now. But, you know, as long as you have these uh, you know, facilities in place now, you can you can plan ahead. Yeah. Have there been any major um, disasters that you've encountered? Oh, well, Gabe, it's so funny you mention that. <laughs> I <had> to, <laughs> why? I mean, I, I don't know what you're talking about, Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were approached by the Art and Tech Lab at LACMA <laughs> to preserve your piece, which was a very nice piece monument on a Mac Mini. And we said, oh, it's really important that you at least get a backup Mac Mini, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't want it in one place. So I took that Mac Mini. And of course, I cloned the brand new blank Mac Mini to your artwork computer. <laughs> just total, you know, crazy mistake. And it really just shows you how quickly digital media can just be erased. Yeah, I just remember I got a call uh, from Joel, I think, who is the director of the Art and Technology Lab. And he was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but we accidentally copied the blank hard drive over your piece. And I was like, wow. You know, I, I mean, it's just, it's such an important conversation to have about this very thing about preservation, right? Luckily, I had a backup of the piece. Um, I know. <laughs> but I was just and like, it's far enough away that I don't feel like vomiting anymore <laughs> when I think about it. But thank like, you for sharing the story, at least. Uh, I think yeah, it's, it's a great yeah, story. I, yeah. So it, it can happen so fast, so fast. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was very lucky that Joel was, you know, you and Joel were not angry, you know, no one tried to get me fired. No, I mean, this uh, stuff happens, you know, with uh, any kind happens. of digital art piece. I've had so many pieces just kind of degrade over time where I have to keep working on them. It's almost like as an artist, you spend just as much the same amount of time restoring and updating your work as you do yeah. making the work in the first place. So it's like an yeah. added amount of uh, an added job that you have to take on. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, from that, now we have some new protocols that I designed. If anything's going to be cloned like that, you need two sets of eyes. You know, it, it's like this is all kind of a new world. So you, you learn the most from your mistakes. and yeah. It's a learning experience. Yeah, it's moving on. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I always think of this quote by the artist Raphael Lozano Hammer. Uh, he says, do not trust anyone who has a method for the preservation of media art. <laughs> do, you, do you agree with that quote or do you actually have methods as somebody who does this professionally? Well, I would agree in that if someone says they have a method that's going to last in perpetuity, they're a fool. Right. <laughs> you know, the, in, unless the method is to do the work every year. I mean, I guess that could be your method that you need to go into it. But even then, it's not going to last forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a strange thing to plan for something to end. You know, you're really yeah. planning for the end. Um, I mean, it's funny. I my, my daughter is three and I like to tell people that her baby photos are so precious. What I do to keep them is I print them out hmm. because I'm worried that if I keep them digitally, they won't be around when she's an adult. Yeah. And so many of us keep all of our memories digitally now. We don't even think yeah. about the physicality of them, right? Yeah. And I, yeah. I would look at photos much more if they were printed out in a shoebox than scrolling through the yep. 10,000 photos I have on my phone each day. Exactly. That's exactly. And, and I think about, you know, the computer I had 10 years ago. Every once in a while, I think, oh, I should boot that up and see what's on there. I think, oh, God, no, I don't want to deal with that right now. Who knows if that thing is even going to boot up? I'm happier with the idea that maybe it still works. I just won't test it. <laughs> that could be part of your job, right? The fact that you have to <laughs> test things constantly to make sure that they still work. Yeah. yeah. Well, Morgan, this has been super interesting. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we go, I have some rapid fire questions for you. So we do this at the end of every podcast here on State of the Art. Um, okay. These are questions that are not necessarily related to what you do at all. And the important thing is just to answer with the, the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, don't, you know, don't overthink it. Just the first thing. So the first question is, if, if a movie was made of your life, what genre would it be and who would play you? Hmm. Um, I'm, I, you know what's so funny? I just think like a Muriel's Wedding kind of thing. <laughs> what, what? About art conservation? <laughs> no, just about my life. Something yeah. sort of quirky. <laughs> and who would play you? I'd love Tony Collette. Sure. Okay. Great. That's great. That makes total sense. So um, let's say we finish this interview right now and you step outside of the office and find a lottery ticket that ends up winning $10 million. Uh, what would you do with it? Oh, buy a big house. <laughs> would you fill it with uh, media art? No, I actually like to knit and do fused glass. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you collect artwork yourself? I have a very nice collection of original clown paintings. What? <laughs> wow, we didn't get into that at all. Where, just, just briefly, where did that come from? I found this great one at an estate sale, and it's just this very scary clown dressed up with vegetables. It's great. So it started from Wait, that. wait. <laughs> you found a picture of a clown dressed up with vegetables? Yeah, we call them old carrot eyes. And, and okay, I feel like we need to do an entirely different podcast about your, your <laughs> clown paintings. But uh, how many clown paintings do you have now? Um, we've got four. And I'm really trying to keep them to just originals, not prints. Oh, okay, yeah, keep the clowns uh, honest and pure, right? Got to keep the value up. Well, maybe one day you can get like a Paul McCarthy video art piece where he's playing a clown too. I know he's done some of those to go with your clown collection. That's incredible. Um, if you, okay, last question here, last rapid fire question. If you were on a desert island, this is the old question, right? And you could only bring one book with you to read for the rest of time. Uh, what would that book be and why? Gosh, it's some sort of collection of short stories. Mm. I just love 
short stories and they would keep me interested. Yeah, that makes sense too. Is there a particular yeah. author that you would like? Or uh... I used to love um, the short stories of Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. That would be fun. Or like um, Miranda July. Yeah, that's. Oh, I love Miranda July. That'd be great yeah, for a desert. Good, perfect desert island reading. They should put that in the back yeah. of her. <laughs> <laughs> well, Morgan, thanks so much for joining me again. Um, it's been really interesting to talk to you about uh, time-based media art and the preservation of time-based media art. Um, do you have, uh, just real quick, I, I heard that you have a colloquium coming up. Um, when is that taking place? Yes. So this is, um, Joey and I are, and the, our time-based media committee is hoping to put together a symposium, uh, probably at LACMA in April. So stay tuned. Uh, we would like to get artists and studios and people working with this media because- Los Angeles is kind of underrepresented in this preservation world, and we have so many resources. So we thought it'd be a really great opportunity. Fantastic. So stay tuned for that. That's happening in April. And uh, thanks again, Morgan. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. Uh, This is Gabe Barcia-Colombo for the State of the Art podcast. Uh, State of the Art is actually created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, We have a great, fantastic producer named Vanessa Wilson. uh, And our audio specialist slash miracle waveform master is Weston Stevens. Uh, So stay tuned for next week. Uh, We're going to have another amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, but I promise it will be worth it.